0: Welcome to Season 2 of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go, always, a little further.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I am here with, I must admit, the very well-travelled Tim Curtis. How are you, Tim? This is the humanitarian edition. I'm very happy to be here with you, Ben, and with our guest. That's awesome. Um, Yeah, I wasn't going to introduce you as a humanitarian, (laughs) but the reason I, I cited the fact that you do have a few stamps in your passport is because I reckon you're probably matched by our guest this week. Beth Eggleston is a humanitarian but has an amazing track record in terms of the countries that she's worked in, the experience she's gathered and the kind of things she's done in those places. Beth has field experiences in Afghanistan. Liberia, Tonga, Costa Rica, Laos, Timor-Leste, Vietnam, Pakistan, Solomon Islands, Indonesia and Sri Lanka to mention just a few. Now, I reckon there's a few stamps in her passport that even you don't have, Tim.
2: what oh, <laughs> or two. <laughs> Another, I haven't been to Costa Rica. You're right.
1: <laughs> yeah, amongst others. Another thing you are not is a Fulbright Scholar, which Beth is. Yeah, but I'll give you a quick rundown on being a Fulbright Scholar. Don't worry about that. Never in doubt. I'm, I'm actually not even sure why, I, why I'm comparing <laughs> Beth to Tim um, because very different leagues. But we're, we're stoked to talk to Beth. Beth um, co-founded the Humanitarian Advisory Group in 2012. She's obviously well-versed in that science of things and we're going to talk to her about um, some of her experiences delivering humanitarian aid all across the planet but also she's extremely prolific in terms of her writing on not only humanitarian issues but also ethics which is a fascinating topic which Mm. we'll discuss with her as well let's get on with the show Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Unforgiving 60. I'm sitting here appropriately socially distanced from my, I was going to say faithful co-host, from my co-host, Tim.
2: How are you? Far away. Not far enough, Ben. Not from far, my far enough.
1: Well, we are very far away from this week's guest who's joined us via Zoom, Beth Eggleston. How are you, Beth?
3: I'm well, very distanced, but uh, yeah, well indeed. Thank you.
1: Beth and I, uh, prior to going live, were just sharing stories, mine worse than Beth's, about uh, some of the Zoom shockers we've had over the last couple of weeks. I guess that would probably resonate with many people, but we managed to get the, the link up pretty well, and it's good to be chatting. Beth, maybe we could start with a bit of background on yourself and, and how you got to where you are today.
3: So I hail from a very small country town in New South Wales. Um I've heard the population's gone up to about 275 now, so things are looking, looking up for come knock New South Wales. <laughs> um, uh, so a beautiful part of the world to have grown up. I um, have been working in the international humanitarian scene now for about 20 years. And have had the good fortune to have uh, met lots of really impressive and interesting people and worked with some pretty interesting organisations. And um, and now we run a, a small social enterprise that provides professional services to humanitarian agencies.
1: And so maybe we could explore that to start with. So you're referring to the Humanitarian Advisory Group?
3: That's right, yes. So... We started that, there were four of us actually, who had all been working internationally for quite some time and wanted to be based in Australia, but sort of didn't want to get out of the game, so to speak. We weren't really able to deploy. We all had small kids and wasn't really, you know, deployments weren't really on the cards anymore, but it, it was really a feeling around how were we going to still add value and utilise our knowledge that we'd gained over the you know, the past decade of also working in the field to support humanitarian agencies in the work that they were doing. So we decided it was an intentional decision actually to uh, create a business. We're often mistaken to, to be a, a charity or an mm-hmm. NGO, but we we deliberately decided we wanted to be a business and we yep. wanted to uh, run with a model of a social enterprise. So we provide a fee-for-service and when we make a profit, um, we're able to... to like put that into either organisations or into to products that the humanitarian sector have said that they need but they can't necessarily always afford, or it may not be politically possible for them to ask for a particular piece of research. So, um, yeah, we're, we're a pretty niche outfit.
1: And I'm really interested in the name. When I first saw it, I thought that was an interesting acronym, but it seems like that was no accident. On your your website, you list some of the genesis of the the noun HAG, and I was interested to see from, and correct my pronunciation, please, Hag Tess, a wise female orator, who yes. figure generally feared and respected. I had no idea. Is that um, sort of, you know, the derogatory term, hag, is is that it share the same genesis?
3: That's right. So we've reclaimed. We've reclaimed the word hag. I'm a proud hag. We're all uh, proud <laughs> hags uh, in our organisation. And it was, uh, it was quite uh, interesting when we first set up back in 2012, uh, we did actually have a dear friend working actually in government and he called one weekend and he said, oh, have you realised what, what H-A-G spells? And I said, well, look, we actually all do have master's degrees. Yeah, we did. We, did we picked. Um, actually, that's, pa- that's part of the uh, the marketing ploy. <clears throat> Obviously, none of us have MBAs like you guys, but um, oh. it's, ter- it's worked out pretty well though because our dream, you know, dream was that people would email us, you know, out of the blue and say, look, you know, I work for humanitarian organisation X. I need a hag. And that's what happens now. And um, that's really the way it So So it works pretty well.
2: Send a hag.
3: So did we Send lose? somewhere
2: yeah. did we lose the context on that? Because it's been used quite <laughs> disparagingly usually, isn't it? You old hag. Well, uh, she's an old be-
3: hag. That's right. Wise woman of the village. And, um, yeah, it became a derogatory term. And we decided, yes, to reclaim that. And uh, we've never looked back.
2: Okay. Well, for a bunch of hags, you certainly Uh have a lot of stamps in your passport and field experience you list as Afghanistan, Liberia, Tonga, Costa Rica, Laos, Timor-Leste, Vietnam and shorter term deployments, Pakistan, Solomon Islands, Indonesia and Sri Lanka, he says taking a breath. For humanitarian coordination or humanitarian operations in general, which was the most challenging environment you've worked in?
3: What a good question that is.
2: I only ask good because ones.
3: Because I guess, yeah, well, uh, exactly. Um, because I suppose, you know, challenging can mean different things. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of when you're looking at a humanitarian operation, I mean, Sri Lanka was definitely a very challenging one. I was there right at the end of the war in 2009. Mm-hmm. And what I found really interesting about that context was talking with the other humanitarian agencies, the other international NGOs, it... I felt that they had really underestimated the savviness, shall we say, of the Sri Lankan government. Mm -hmm. This was a government, you know, often I feel like there's still a a strong colonial nature, I think, sometimes when it comes to humanitarian assistance. And, you know, the the agencies were going around along with their business and sort of saying, oh, we could give this advice or that advice. And, And the government were running rings around us in terms of, passing their own resolutions to the you know the human rights council and 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 quoting humanitarian standards back at the agencies and and i was trying to say to some of these agencies the the ministers that we're trying to to advocate to they all went to oxford and cambridge just Hmm. the same as you you know talking to the you know these brits that had come out to try and you know uh negotiate peace and, and provide humanitarian assistance and i think we underestimate uh very much sometimes the capability and the understanding and although the international humanitarian system can be very complex that doesn't mean that it can't be used for other purposes Um, so that was that was a, a pretty fascinating one actually and what was interesting after that was then the Sri Lankan government had gone on to Say, um, oh, we'd like to provide training for other other militaries around the world. We're the only country in the world who have militarily defeated a terrorist organization, and we're very happy to share that learning. Mm. And from the, a humanitarian or a human rights point of view, that was something that was quite worrying.
1: From a military point of view, it's it's something that's really fascinating. And you are extremely well written on uh, civil military rela- uh, relations, the the roles of the the military in these kind of um, short of war. Uh, situations. What, in that particular example, I'm, I'm really interested in exploring your views on the role of the military in, in sort of contemporary counterinsurgency and stability operations. But is there anything we should learn from the way that the Sri Lankans approach the, the Tamil situation um, that potentially we haven't done well in places like Afghanistan and Iraq?
3: Well, I think what was, what were, was interesting when we, we think about civil military Relations and and also throwing around this word humanitarian, which is very sacred to us, HAGs. I the Sri Lankan government would say we're we're only this is a humanitarian operation, and the way in which that was instrumentalized, the way in which they framed their their actions and their operations, and the the number of people that we saw killed. And this is a country that is in, it's in the Indo Pacific, it's in our region, mm. and to think that there you know forty thousand civilians killed you know, by the end of that that war and to think that everyone, and it was not something that was on the Australian news every every evening um, and it was, uh, yeah, I, I think lots of lessons were learnt in the way that after that there were many sort of navel-gazing reports put out by the United Nations, but they did come up with this agenda, this centrality of protection, which again tries to drive home this piece around when we're providing humanitarian assistance anywhere, If you can't protect the people whom you are serving then you're not doing your job so you can provide the most brilliant humanitarian material assistance going you can have amazing shelter you can have the clean running water you can have you know nutritious food all these other kind of services that keep people alive but if you can't keep them safe if you can't protect their dignity uh then you're not doing your job and they had this um going back to the the former Yugoslavia and the conflict there they talk about the the well-fed dead this idea that you were able to provide all these services that people think you need to keep mm. someone alive, but you have to protect. You have to try and make sure that they're, you know, they're not being violated in any other way.
1: So wherein lies the line between defence and offence in that sort of situation? A, a lot of what you've just spoken about is is talking about protecting the population, avoiding the, the welfare dead, which I hadn't heard of, but it's a, a great, um, very evocative sort of saying. What about, and from... Tim and my background in special operations, where there's been this massive bias towards sort of targeting, going out and trying to get bad guys. My personal view is that we've probably gone too far with that in most of the applications; that it's become an end unto itself rather than a support to these kind of humanitarian goals. But is there a role for that kind of offensive operation to take out the the belligerents or the threat forces?
3: Well, it's a great question because I think uh, on in the humanitarian System and on the humanitarian side, people would, uh, you know, ask this question a lot. I mean, when when is the use of force,
0: mm-hmm.
3: you know, something that they would they would call for? And I mean, I you can't deny the facts if you hear the people of Kosovo who still regard Bill Clinton as uh, as an absolute savior because of his action, you know, getting NATO in to do aerial bombardments um, during that conflict. Um, and and that the same is said in many other places. Um, but I think when it comes to protecting civilians it's it's quite interesting an example from afghanistan when McChrystal really came in to say look i i think we need to you know look at boots on the ground we're going to reduce the number of airstrikes which is what you know many afghan communities had been calling for and on the humanitarian side and we were very interested to see how this was going to to play out really and we did see civilian casualties plummet because of that change in in strategy so he was um He was quite popular on the humanitarian side um, until, of course, he uh, lost his job. But um, it it was an interesting way of he he actually tried to to turn it around and actually say if if we're killing the very people that we're here to, to support, it doesn't really seem to to really make very much sense. And of course, when you look at um, War Machine, that fantastic uh, Netflix. Yeah,
0: yeah the Bretton Which
3: is just, uh, yeah, which is brilliant. And um, I'm not sure if McChrystal really runs like that, but I'd, uh, I'd love to know if he does. <laughs> mm.
2: In 2001, um, Beth, I was in Sierra Leone, again, close to one of your old stomping grounds. And it, mm-hmm. I was there at the tail end of 10 years of civil war where the Revolutionary United Front Um, which were the bad guys, were actually only as bad as the Sierra Leone Army, who equally were threatening to communities. And so a lot of what we were doing in 2001 was this stability and confidence-building piece. But one of the things that I experienced being a long way out of the capital, right down in the Mano River um, area, was that a lot of the humanitarian groups, those international NGOs, wanted nothing to do with us. Even though we we're focused on a common purpose, are we getting better with that NGO military relationship, the civil military piece?
3: Great question. And some NGOs would say we shouldn't be focusing on it. And I have lots of interesting, you know, conversations with with NGOs that just say, you know, we're we're never going to have a common purpose. And although I agree that if you're adhering to humanitarian principles and militaries are, are upholding, you know, political principles, really, they have a p- political mission a lot of the time, and a lot of the time they do not, they do not align. But that doesn't mean to me that we shouldn't be at least communicating, even just to deconflict, just to even say, OK, we're going to be running an operation in this area, you know, just to let you know. So please don't be in that area at that time. And that that can go both ways. What I think is fascinating about this is we don't unpack it from a from an anthropological viewpoint, which I think my undergrad studies was, was in anthropology and I think that's part of the reason why I find this so fascinating because it's not that we're just that we're seeing lots of people from different nations involved in the civil military piece when you have, you know, you take a, Uh, a NATO ISAF example where you've got you know 34 troop contributing nations but the the differences in those organizational cultures uh, is fascinating you're coming from the absolute you know epitome of you know command and control uh, on the military side and from an NGO side incredibly flat so you have you have when you see them coming together in a mechanism we have these bodies called clusters you know thematic groups that discuss issues and sometimes militaries are invited to those and and outside of those meetings, military colleagues have said, right, so um, so just let me know, without that kind of meeting, so who's in charge? Oh, well, look, no one's in charge? <laughs> uh, okay. And, and, and so who... who that
1: destroys a who... military... Like, totally, we, totally.
3: Is... And what are you trying to achieve? Well, really, it's a, it's a grassroots consultative process and we want to ensure that there's consensus around trying to have a process and just tearing their hair out. Like <laughs> this is a, you know, it could be a rapid onset emergency. They're desperate to, you know ensure that they're able to deliver something that's tangible that's worthwhile that you know often is quite photogenic Uh, and when you're having these kind of processes because the NGOs and the humanitarian community they they're really understanding that their relationships and partnerships and the process is just as important as what they're delivering and they would have been there 30 years before that particular disaster and they might be there 30 years afterwards so they are really having to take all that into account whereas Military actors are there for a short time, as they should be. They're used you know, in extremis to support such an operation. Mm. Um, but it means that you work in very different ways.
1: Is there, a, within the NGO community, is there a stereotype of the the military? And if so, has yours changed over time?
2: Oh, yes.
1: There absolutely has to be.
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> and this, to be honest, this is something, um, yeah, there's some juicy bits to this. So, I mean, it is a question and it's something that I raise every time I get the the privilege to chat to, to ADF and even when we're doing training with NGOs around you can be the person that breaks through the stereotype. Of course, the stereotype is there. On one side, you have the the dreadlock ser- sandal wearing you know tree huggers, and on the <laughs> other side, the the baby killing you know uh, war machine. Yep. Um, and yeah, it, it's ab- it's absolutely right. I think if we actually ever take the time to realise that they're they're people behind both of those facades and yes there may be areas they're never going to agree on but there has to be at least some kind of basic dialogue um, to exchange some level of uh, information and that's not to say that you're going to be doing joint programs or joint operations in any way shape or form but there needs to be some kind of communication and I guess I maybe I'm seen as a bit of a maybe betraying the humanitarian sisterhood in some in some ways uh, having ended up you know getting engaged in afghanistan to ex us so perhaps that uh, i was seen as going to the dark yeah
1: betrayal i do
3: um i do feel like though you can make these relationships really meaningful i was recently last year in the us for a couple of months and got to reconnect with all three of my when i did the civil military coordination piece in afghanistan uh, three of my um nato counterparts who are uh, in canada and the us Uh, You know, sort of 12, 15 years later, getting to actually meet up with them and their families, and, you know, we'd stayed in touch all this time. And that's just through, you know, we just had pushed through those stereotypes and had, we'd got a lot of stuff done while we were working together, you know, on the ground. But we, you know, we'd found something of really value in each other and had, um, yeah, stayed in contact for that sort of next decade. And it was great to sort of reconnect.
1: As, as much as I love a good stereotype, the, the older I get, the more I, I find it a heuristic that if I've got that really firm black-and-white view on something, then I don't know enough about it. There's so many of these wonderful shades of grey, and as, as much as I think from the military perspective, we liked to think of ineffectual sort of sandal-wearing, what did you say, mung bean hippie dreadlocks? <laughs> um, you know, you, you meet some of these folk, and to your earlier point, you know, their understanding of the nuance of the conflict or of the particular operating environment often far outstripped anything that the military was bringing to the party. And in in many ways, the human beings were, were much more common than, than different. Mm. And we, in fact, I'm just thinking about
2: this, Beth, in terms of the agenda peace security window that you're very familiar with. So we work with an international NGO who are just absorbed in all things inside the tapestry of the communities in which they work. You know, they're all over the countryside, in Myanmar, in Somalia, in some places in South America. And they're hardwired into community because they actually employ from the very communities that they're supporting, which of course the militaries don't. And so I guess there's a mm. different, I'm not saying it's a better outlook, but it's a different outlook that sometimes the NGOs do have. And I guess the other thing that they tend to do is not worry so much about the hierarchy. And I've always loved my time with development organisations and NGOs. And I reckon it's because maybe Ben and our time in the SAS, we also didn't really care so much for the hierarchy.
1: And speaking of all those sort of things, I mean, we've been talking about NGOs as if that is one homogenous group. And of course, they're not. I, I was delighted to read a uh, a quote from you saying, after surviving the bureaucracy of large INGOs in the UN, <laughs> and that really resonated with me because I consider myself a survivor of the bureaucracy of large defence and I'm really enjoying working in a smaller, more agile environment. But you you clearly are, are really enjoying that same thing, being in a more agile sort of dynamic situation at the moment um, with the, the HAG. Oh
3: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think is, I think it may be especially frustrating working in large bureaucracies and who knows, this could be the same on the defence side because you are meant to be incredibly sort of, you know, responding quickly yeah. to, to an event. So you have a situation. So we may have been, for example, you know, Oxfam uh, Australia, Oxfam International wanting to get out a, an advocacy piece, for Quickly on what may be happening in South Sudan, and of course you've got the time difference. It needs to go up, you know, back up to, to Oxford or to, to New York to the Oxford International Office there, who are liaising with the New York. You know, it just seems to take mm. some days and days. Think, oh my God, we're we're the ones who are wanting to be, you know, on the front foot and putting information out there, and and the UN the, the same way. I mean, admittedly, when the chips are down, you can kind of navigate a lot of things very quickly in the UN if you really have to pull out all the stops, but. Then there's other things that just go on and on and on and, and and I guess what's challenging with all of these things and this is a civil military piece as well I think is that you know we know our own organizations well and so from the UN side you, I, I, I was used to when I worked with the UN every day getting up and reading articles in the n- newspaper UN does nothing UN fails UN is hopeless UN should be you know disbanded you know yeah. I mean we hear of this you know even from well, the US administration at the moment. Um, huh. So, but then when you understand that the UN is made up by member states, it's as good as the people that mm-hmm. that make up that organisation. And when you're looking even at the UN Security Council, you can't blame the UN as a body, but you look at those those parts that make up that sum, that mechanism. And that's where you see where the, the, the trickiness is. And that that's the same as, as every organisation, I suppose. But I I, I'm, I feel very grateful to have sort of, looked behind the scenes and sort of see seen what it looks like though that those machinations as they happen and to understand why some things take a long time and sure I'm not saying I'm not making excuses for it I guess I'm trying to explain it a little bit mm. but I, I was um yeah I guess I was frustrated with these sort of large bureaucracies and and just it seemed like we were always restructuring and the NGO world I don't know if this is like this in defense but there's always some kind of restructure <laughs> that was happening and I thought spending half my time in restructure meetings I you know, and I was always getting in trouble from the boss for rolling my eyes. And I thought, oh, I'm just not sure if I'm, I'm not overly patient, perhaps. So I was lucky to find these kindred spirits, four of us. So we were sort of someone from CARE, from Oxfam, from World Vision, from the UN. And we sort of came together and said, let's let's start something that's small, that we can, you know, make decisions on the spot. Uh, and maybe you're fighting the same thing as well, sort of coming out the other end where you can have an idea and you can action it almost immediately.
1: We definitely are, but I'm really interested in, at what point does that small agile organization become that large sluggish bureaucracy? I mean, there must be, so Standfast, the UN, which was created as this big multinational thing in the wake of World War II, but organizations that grow, what are your thoughts as you grow the hag into this multinational sort of um, behemoth what's the tipping point between the the small agile intimate organization that you're enjoying at the moment and that kind of bureaucratic um uh, sort of lethargic organization we've just been talking about
3: oh it's just like you've been listening to some of our conversations <laughs> right at the moment actually so we are still a very small team we're 11 people at the moment however you're exactly right we are at a a point now where we do have to have systems and processes that we are going through due diligence processes with different partners um, who pay us money to provide services for them Mm -hmm. uh, as they rightly should. Um, And also not just that on the social enterprise as well, we're certified, uh, B Corp certified and have our social trader certification. That's also actually quite a lot of administration in ensuring that you're reaching those high levels that you're the best practice and this, that or the other. And it's really hard, you know, talking to the team, I sometimes say maybe we longed for the day when we were five people and we just kind of flew yeah. by the seat of our pants. Um, and now we are in that bit where we have to have some of those, those processes. Then I keep wondering where is the tipping point? Do we set that up and then maybe we can grow another 10 people before we need to do another layer of admin? I'm not sure. So it's a question we've really been asking ourselves at the moment and it's one that we, I suppose, have to make um, – you Know decisions on very, um, you know, on a very regular basis because mm. we have to be intentional about where we want to go.
1: We, I've got a theory, I've heard someone say this, but that the point where you get an HR department, that's the, the beginning. Have you got an HR department?
3: No, maybe, I'll ne- we'll never get one. Maybe that's the <laughs> beginning.
1: It's, it's Tim, a, Tim does a lot of things. <clears throat> Pardon me. Tim does a lot of things to ensure that we the, need a warrant
2: department. <laughs> HR department. But the question, I guess, is one of efficiency and effectiveness rather than bureau- bureaucracy. Because some large NGOs are very effective. My concern, I guess, having worked alongside them for near on a decade, is actually it's less about the NGOs and more about the donors and the rules that they set up that can be gamed. And I don't want to point to any particular donor group, but by way of one example, um, the good old-fashioned overhead rate, you know, if you're allowed to be awarded a $100 million contract and then wash off 50% of that in overhead so it never leaves, you know, insert the donor's domiciled country, and therefore 50% only ends up in the country where it was supposed to be used, and then, you know, some of that gets consumed in country-level fees and salaries and... Um, you know infrastructure and then what you really see is just 25 percent going downstream those dollars hitting the dirt that's always been what's concerned me is less about the way the the NGO does the business because I think they're all very, really well intentioned wanting to do good downstream but more about how the system is set up and that that's the bit that's broken would you
3: yeah it's, well that's a really good question because um we've had a lot of discussions about this and actually what Actually, if I turn it on its head for a moment, um, looking at now that I've um, had some experience looking at the kind of what what the back end looks like, I suppose, for providing some of these programs, actually, the the monitoring and evaluation requirements of some of these donors are are quite, and as they should be, quite rigorous. That actually costs a lot of money. How do you set up a good monitoring framework? How do you provide an independent evaluation of that? How about the whole time you're doing the program, you're meant to be doing capacity enhancement or capacity development with local partners. That actually is quite time-consuming and you need to invest in those relationships. In some uh, situations, security is quite expensive. Mm. What, what your um, premises is, the kind of vehicles that you're, that you're purchasing, are you having to even, you know, pay a, pr- a private security company for, for bits and pieces? So, um, and also the duty of care piece as well. If you're actually doing your duty of care properly, if you're doing remote programming, you, you were mentioning Somalia before. There's lots of agencies that provide uh, humanitarian assistance in Somalia, but don't ever set foot there themselves. What happens if the local partner you're working with, if it's a convoy that gets attacked or you know whatever happens, what kind of level of support do you provide for hmm. that for that family for that for that that, that uh, local partner? So I think when we're looking at that. That admin fee, I've sort of seen at the back end now, there's a hell of a lot that donors expect uh, to come back, the, the, the levels of due diligence they're looking at, and also the kind of um, the workplace that is uh, expected by the, the people that work there. If you're looking working for an organisation that takes social justice very, uh, very seriously you're going to have an organisation that has a, a paid parental uh, leave scheme uh, and a whole range of other benefits to ensure that there is, um, you know, it's an inclusive and flexible workplace. So all of that actually costs money to do this work well. Yeah. Anyone can take 50 bucks and go to a country and sort of give it to who they think. But, I mean, who's done the needs assessment to ensure that the the people who are receiving the money, that it's not actually going to do some harm? How, how have you done all those kind of... Um, that contextual understanding I, I suppose so i'd like to think that for most organizations that that admin or overhead that they're using especially the the char- on the charity side and it, a lot of the time it's pretty low like lots of organizations that we know of that are doing stuff it's 9 or 10% mm. and on that they are trying to you know pay for a, a, you know a, a expensive rent in melbourne it might be for their headquarters and you know trying to ensure that their staff uh, are looked after and that they're doing really super Cutting edge and high quality work. And it's interesting because, of course, the general public, when they're sort of saying, oh, hang on, it isn't every single cent of the money that I'm giving getting there. Um, I guess it's, I think a, a more nuanced understanding perhaps of what it takes to run one of these programs is something that if people knew what it took, perhaps they might t- change their tune a bit.
2: Mm. And Beth, what do you miss most about being in the field?
3: Oh, yeah, that's such a good question. Um, yeah, I guess I felt like I was really living the dream. I suppose for those three years that I, I lived and worked in Afghanistan, I I had so many really good Afghan mates that I'm still I'm still friends with now, and lots of them are you know in different countries now. They're claiming asylum in different countries, mm-hmm. and I get to you know stay in close contact with them. That it you know that's great. Um, but I guess it was just that feeling of. Um, of really trying to get across what was happening. I mean, so I mean all of these different, especially on the conflict side situations are incredibly complex and they're so dynamic. They're changing every day. So I guess it was that no, no two days were the same. Even though my job was on the coordination side, so it was lots of meetings and you know those kind of you know mechanisms and systems. Just being able to go out on a some kind of assessment mission, pulling together government NGOs, you know, and, and going out and sitting down with different governors and finding out what is going on here. And they'd say, well, everything was fine last week, but this week Iran has decided they wanted to push all the refugees back over the border and now everything's gone to shit. So... I guess I just found that that high pace of life I found really interesting and at that time the agency that I was working with the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs for one period I was the only staff member they had in Afghanistan so I was getting a lot of great support from headquarters in New York and Geneva so there was you know there was a lot of interest I felt there was a lot of you know political goodwill to do good work there so yeah, it was it was just a wonderful time to, to work there and to make some wonderful friendships and relationships. Um, but I think on on the flip side, although I I really do miss it a lot, I think it's also trying to understand we're we're very passionate about localization at HAG and how we can support locally led humanitarian response and even you know peace negotiations to an extent. How can we support from afar? How can we provide? Great advice, um, evidence-based research Mm. on how donors, NGOs, Red Cross, UN, even private business, when they're engaging in these kind of contexts, what should they be thinking of? What are the questions that they should be asking for? Even if you're a private company operating one of these countries, how do you ensure that you protect civilians in the way that you work? Even though you may not have, you know, any kind of part in the aid operation in any way, but there are knock-on effects of people's actions. So. I try not to focus on it too much every now and then when I hear about different countries in the news, I think, oh, that was just such an interesting time. But, you know, getting to, to run HAG with my amazing uh, co-founder and director, Kate Sutton, and our amazing team, I mean, no no two days are the, are the same at the moment either. And throwing a bit of homeschooling at it, <laughs> it's pretty
1: interesting. <laughs> I, was, I was actually just going to ask at a personal level, do you miss... The excitement, it's sort of one of these weird things where it's often quite hard to relate that in such an awful environment, and I'm thinking from a combat sort of uh, perspective, um, but there is a certain uh, almost intoxicating excitement. You hear stories of people becoming almost addicted to this Um, great movie, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot with uh, Tina Fey from the, the war journalist side of it. Did you ever experience that? It, it's almost I a, a, I don't know, a, something of a taboo. But
3: yes, I I feel guilty to say. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say yeah,
1: guilty almost... pleasure. It's not really a pleasure. Yeah, but...
3: and I mean whiskey tango foxtrot to a T. Yeah, we were we were in those bunker parties. We we were there. We we were. Yeah, and and it was hard to explain sometimes to my Afghan colleagues, who of course were trying to juggle all the normal uh, everyday life. We we were there away from any kind of responsibility, family responsibilities, financial responsibilities, whatever it may be. We were just there to work, and in our downtime, our downtime was totally ours. And there was a lot of crazy stuff that happened in that that downtime. Um, and it yeah, incredibly intense. And I th- I think you're right when you're under that kind of pressure when you're in one of those bunker bars one of those parties and you can hear the rockets in the distance and it just kind of heightens <laughs> the energy yeah. um, and but since since those times that i've been thinking about the kind of pressure that local staff were under that we that we worked with we were we were in the situation that when anything went pear-shaped there was an evacuation plan for us we all got to to be flown out to dubai we had our grab bags we had our visas to get out you know it was all sort of there and you think of them, they, a lot of our, you know, local staff we worked with, uh, and this could have, you know, be you know, like similar with interpreters and things um, who worked with ADF and other military forces. And they're still dealing with all the just normal stuff with life, you know, family complications and, you know, all that kind of stuff that they were trying to, to live with, as well as work really long hours. Um, and I still look back now and think, wow, we expected so much of that when that was our whole life at the time. We, you know, we could just give our all. We had nothing else we had to worry about. Um, but I agree. I think Afghanistan ruined me forever in that way. <laughs> um, that it was a, a country of just such incredible intensity and beauty. And what was happening at the time, um, you know, was the focus of the world at that time. And, um, yeah. I agree. It is, uh, it's probably very much an addictive kind of situation.
2: So from those remote, austere operating environments, your field experience, in 2019, let's go to a location that's a little more civil. Um, you undertook a Fulbright scholarship at the US Naval War College. Can you give us your experience on that? Or could
0: you yeah. tell me
1: what a Fulbright scholarship is?
0: Absolutely. <laughs> I, I mean,
1: it's like a Rhodes Scholar. I know it's good. I know it
2: means oh, you're smart. That's
3: so nice. So, yeah, like just keep, yeah, just to say that. Yeah, it's just another Rhodes scholarship.
2: Really. <laughs> there, there was a fair bit of implied knowledge there, and I tried to make myself smarter by not <laughs> <a> nice <laughs> asking. <laughs> that's brilliant, Beth.
1: Can we ask Tim because he did ask as if he knew? Tim, what is a Fulbright scholarship?
2: Uh, yes, uh, it's a good question. Well, I might look. Tim clearly uh, rath- Rather, rather than rather than embarrass Beth by <coughs> you know explaining the scholarship that she had, maybe we should just get Beth to explain. <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, I did ask the same question at one stage. What is a Fulbright Scholarship? Um, it's I, I heard about the Fulbright Scholarship, um, I don't know, it was about 10 years ago actually. I heard about a guy, I, I knew that you could get, you know, these fancy scholarships to go and do, like you guys, did, you know, fancy MBAs or, you know, other kind of masters of public policy degrees in the US and I was sort of like, oh, that's good, not sure I have another masters in me at this stage. Mm. But what the beauty of the Fulbright, it also has... Um, scholarships that allow people from all over the world to go to the US and spend three months studying in an area of their of their interest and I suppose I was quite I really saw a really interesting alignment with the Fulbright scholarship and my passion as you've um, identified about civil military coordination because where the Fulbright program started was Senator J William Fulbright in 1946 he had this philosophy of turning swords into plowshares which is where credits from the sale of surplus U.S. war materials were used to fund an, acad- an academic ex- exchange between countries in the U.S. And the thinking was that, you know, if people got to know one another and countries, you know, understood each other more, then we wouldn't have a repeat of the, of the Second World War. It was mm-hmm. this idea that if you built peace, understanding and prosperity, that that would inoculate us from that kind of, um, that kind of tragedy. So it's interesting because the first time a, a colleague of mine said, oh, you've got to apply for this. I looked at it. I went through that. Thought, oh, it's too hard. So I just didn't it. <laughs> uh, I just sort of thought, oh, it's just yeah. too much. So I just had another gin and tonic and just closed my computer. And then the next year he said, oh, how'd you go with your application? You know, and I said, oh, I didn't really get around to it. He's like, come on. So I thought, okay, right. I'll get, you know, pull myself into gear. And this is a... Um, a shout out to anyone listening. You know, applications are open. They close in July. Get amongst it. Um, and there were a couple of people from the ADF actually who were on in my cohort as well. Mm-hmm. And it, it was fantastic because I got to go over and um, the, the the gang that I worked with at the US Naval War College. Uh, they specialize specifically in this humanitarian civil military coordination. So they're obviously from the, the naval background. Oh, lots of new acronyms there. Oh yeah in mm. a soup of new acronyms, still can't work out where Seventh Fleet or Third Fleet or wherever they are. Um, <laughs> but it was it was great because we had all those hard discussions uh, around. Hang on, but why don't humanitarian actors just get with the program? We're all there for the same reason. Come on, you know. And having those mm. hard dis- discussions around. Well, oh, well, we're not. That you know, humanitarian actors they work to those humanitarian principles of neutrality, of impartiality, of humanity, of independence. They're independent of any milit- of military, political, and economic goals. They're there to alleviate human suffering, and that sometimes, not always, but sometimes can be at odds or different to what other government actors and it's not just military but government um, actors as well. So we had some great, uh, great discussions. I got to be involved in some wonderful training at different, different situations, and you know, provide some some context about what it's like to work with a humanitarian agency and to to really set up these mechanisms where you can have open channels of communication with military to to either ask for assistance, advice, request for support for some kind of operation or to actually have the hard conversations around night raids, civilian casualties, airstrikes and what that's actually like. So it was a wonderful experience. And I, I also got to, you know, spend time going to the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative and many other different universities, but also one of the highlights was just wandering through all the Smithsonian museums. That was just, yeah, just say, fantastic. Cool. It was just so great. And one of the ones that really I found amazing was actually the um, the Holocaust Memorial Museum because they had a new, a new exhibition there which was looking at America's role in the Holocaust. And that was really interesting, looking at people's decision-making and it actually plotted what people knew when. Hmm. So this whole idea of like, no, no, no we, we couldn't do anything. No one knew about it. And it was fascinating to understand. And then that was overlaid on an exhibition about on about Syria and talked about, well, you can't pretend that we don't know what's going on now. Here it is. We're giving you the information. And what you do matters. That was the hashtag that was all the way through the museum was what you do matters. And I thought it was it was very powerful to say, don't think that this is just something that happens in the past. That this yeah. is some weird historical throwback. You must understand that what we do today matters.
2: So it's a it's a reasonable explanation, Beth, you've given on what a Fulbright scholarship is. I just like to fill in fill in a few blanks. Sure,
0: sure. <laughs> Actually about
2: about fifty percent of the scholarships are awarded to international students, four thousand of the eight thousand. Couple of interesting things though. Sixty Fulbright alumni have won Nobel Prizes.
3: Oh, well I'm and, just on track then.
2: <laughs> yeah, and eighty six have won Pulitzers.
3: Oh, steady on. <laughs>
2: I like this. This is a quote from J. William Fulbright. He says, educational exchange can turn nations into people, contributing as no other form of communication can to the humanizing of
1: international relations. That's great.
3: Yeah. Oh, it's world peace all around here.
1: <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> I, I want to change tax slightly, and I want to talk about ethics. Now, this is an area oh, of expertise, as I'm led to believe from yourself, and... and um. I was, I was interested to note you can, uh, contributed a chapter to a book called Ethics Under Fire, Challenges for the Australian Army, which was edited by a guy called Al Palazzo, who I worked with when I was in the Directorate of Army Research and Analysis. Um, so it, it was a, an interesting little connection there. But let's go right back to the, the sort of start when we talk about ethics in conflict. Um, can you explain for our audience, mainly Tim partially me um there's <laughs> sort of the, the concepts of jus ad bellum and jus in bello. you know the the kind of ethical principles about the, the application of violence
3: well this is really interesting because such a important part of how humanitarian agencies work is is around this this concept of you know of international humanitarian law and I guess this is why and I probably haven't spoken enough about it one of the most important humanitarian players if not the most important humanitarian players in the world um, being the the Red Cross Red Crescent movement and them you know the Red Cross Red Crescent movement being the the holder of you know the laws of war if you like those Geneva conventions and the work that they unfailingly commit to in every kind of context. And I suppose that's part of the reason why I'm a, a Red Cross emergency services volunteer here in Australia, because seeing some of the stuff that they were involved with in every kind of context, they, they, it doesn't matter how bad things are, they are doing their, their visits in prisons to understand what's going on. They are the ones who are you know, advising at every level. What, what does proportionality look mm. like? And I guess what I like about their approach is it's quite practical In the way that they say, of course, the Geneva Conventions are not against war. We're not going to pretend that war is never going to happen. I mean, it's unfortunately it's part of the human condition that 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 fighting and you know this kind of thing is going to happen. But there must be limits to what that is. So this this sort of understanding around where those limits are, and I I guess this is why it's really interesting when we talk about you know artificial intelligence and these kind of things Mm -hmm. because. There's a couple of school of thoughts, aren't there? Like some could say, well, this will really protect civilians if you have um, some, of, some of these AI things because yep. artificial intelligence doesn't get hungry or tired. Or, or emotional, through. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then others will say, yeah, but is there an algorithm <laughs> that can always be right? Um, others say, and, yeah, and but surely have you there's seen term got to Terminator? A... <gasps> yeah, that's right. Or Westworld? So I, I think it's... Um, and what I what I think is really interesting, and some of this, the conversations that I had were, were kind of terrifying. In the US, actually, when they were talking about you know great power competition, and what does a humanitarian operation look like if you suddenly have you know you know World War Three, and you have some of these great powers really going at it? Hmm. Um, what does it look like if when when all our young humanitarians that you know are bright eyed, bushy tailed, incredibly smart, brilliant, capable, but suddenly um, there's no such thing as GPS? Uh, yeah. at the moment in the humanitarian sector, everything's moving towards cash, the use of blockchain in terms of moving money around to affected populations. What happens if like all of that goes out? You know, what if, what if, you know, you know, the, um, GPS or inter- internet is down, how, how are we actually going to do all these new, fantastic, innovative things that we we think are going to save the world? You know, how, how is that all actually going to operate? Um, and, and no one really had any any answers. But I think what was most interesting is we actually was involved in a war game on an urban outbreak. And we had, it was a civil military game. We had, you know, lots of um, military from Germany, and US and, and other countries and people from the CDC and the World Health Organization, NGOs. And it was played out actually on a a type of flu. And it was looking huh. at what, what it might look like. And I, I just sort of hmm. look back at that now and that's only about eight months ago and I think, wow, wow. Um, I'd like to think that the lessons that we learned there, you know, maybe are being applied, but it was all around how can we, you know, how, how do we even prioritise together? Like when you have that kind of scenario, everyone's in there about, you know, I'm in my lane and this is what's important. Um, but how do we actually try and look at what the priorities are for other people and try and understand what all those different stakeholders are thinking?
1: And one that I always wrestle with is this idea of, I guess the ends and the means and, you know, does one justify the other? It it seems in many ways we're trying to fight very sanitised wars, we're trying to be very surgical and trying... We almost seem to forget at some points that, you know, the, the application of the military instrument is inherently based on this um, or it inherently involves violence. Are we are we able in sort of modern, I guess, Western democracies to to sort of keep the ethical upper hand in fighting some of these conflicts, do you think?
3: Such a good question because, I mean, many would say that's, that's what we stand on, right? That, that's how exactly. we have our, you know, quote-unquote moral high ground. And if we uh, go down a path, which, of course, some people will say certain governments have, of of you you know applying violence and applying force in a way that they believe is unethical and they believe actually causes certain groups to to mobilize and a, and a, and a sense of solidarity between you know amongst mm. other groups around those actions that they would say that that's actually causing more harm than good and I think it's a great point that that sanitized point that you made the idea of I mean do do you take on that that same um, level of feeling of responsibility or even of emotional baggage if you are sitting in Tampa uh, mm. you know, piloting a drone and doing that. And, I mean, maybe you do. I mean, we're making assumptions that just because you were there you didn't, but maybe you do. I I don't actually know. But, you know, they talk about vicarious trauma a lot as well, so it's, it's possible that they do. Um, but I, I don't think we know. I mean, when it comes to, you know, war and space, they talk about, you know, the next war will be fought you know, amongst satellites, perhaps. And that's still going to have a huge human toll because of those knock-on effects, I guess, and the fact that people won't have access to those services and the things that they need for life, which, I mean, we're sort of seeing that a bit at the moment. Um, But I, I do think that IHL is more important than ever. I, I really do. I, I feel if we don't, if we sort of throw out that moral compass, although those sort of laws of how we govern conflict, then I feel we're sort of going right back to the start. Mm. I feel I feel that we almost need to, some people are saying, do we need to update them to ensure that, you know, the laws of space are, you know, <laughs> involved in that? But I think that they're pretty, I think that they can be applied, all these very smart lawyers who are able to, you know, Dr. Helen Durham, who's an Australian, who, you know, is the head of law at the International Committee of the Red Cross in Geneva. I mean, she, the way in which she talks about this and is able to, um, you know, provide examples and case studies and and really explain it in a way that makes complete sense. And I think it's, you know, it's what so much of um, the culture is based on, isn't it? I mean, uh, so many of Western militaries are, you know, they're across this kind of thing. And I think if if that's something we decide is no longer relevant, that would be a a catastrophe. I really do.
1: So if we follow on from that, how can we teach, practice and get better at being more ethical, particularly, I'm, I'm thinking in a military context, and I, I know a lot of people are, are working on this. In fact, I think one of your co-authors in that same book, um, Dean Peters, is it Dean Peters?
3: Yes, oh, Dean B- Peter Baker. Yeah, Dean
1: Peter Baker. Um, Dean Peter Baker is, you know, really doing a lot of work with the ADF in this ethics space. What can we do to to practically bring this into our practitioners of war?
3: I think some of the work Peter, uh, Dean Peter Baker is doing is is brilliant. And it actually goes to um, a really interesting report that the International Committee of the Red Cross put out a couple of, um, oh, might have been about 18 months ago now. And one of the case studies it looked at was actually the Australian Defence Force. And it talked about, you know, that idea of, sure, people know academically about what international humanitarian law is. They understand about, you know, something that has to be proportional. They understand about... That you know you've got to discriminate between civilians and military, all that kind of stuff. But then they talked about that you've got to do that training. And I know that the ADF does does do a lot of this, but you've got to do that training under duress. So sure, you know academically what that what that looks like. You know yeah. what what the rules are. But when you're super super tired, or if mm. your whole unit have have been killed, or you know, like it's it's that really hard bit. And I actually think the military do this a lot better. Then humanitarian actors do it in the way that we don't have anything like the the kind of training that 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 um, the, you know that militaries do in this area. And there's some ethical, you know, horrors that you know that you would be aware of. Naming one, the, the Oxfam scandal of, yeah, of what happened Haiti. in Haiti years ago. Yep. You know, where mm. you have people abusing their position of power and um, and taking advantage of, of of young girls. So I think. It, it happens in any kind of situation where there is a power differential, right? So that, that could be where yep. someone has the the power to perpetrate violence. The
0: guns or it the money. Be that,
3: that's right. Or that's right. And on the aid world it's it's the, the power it could be the power of life or the power of safety, the power of reuniting a family. Mm-hmm. Um and I think the aid world now is is really coming around to there needs to be so much more transparency, training, the policy uh Uh, world across the NGOs and humanitarian world is really tightening up especially on this PSEA this prevention of sexual exploitation and abuse it's much much stronger now Um, and and of course it should have been probably stronger to begin with but I think as we move towards that we, we have to have that kind of I think that duresspe is really important because we can all know these things academically but do we know I mean you guys probably do know how that you might react in some of these because you've been in those kind of incredibly intense situations, but most people don't. Um, and i sure you can go through simulations in this kind of thing, but I, I do think understanding not just what a policy says but how you would actually yeah. enact that in the heat of the moment is so important.
1: And it's funny your point on duress because it's not just uh, acute duress, you know, like you said, you're very tired or something's just happened. But also, I think what we're seeing playing out in retrospect in a lot of Western militaries is that chronic duress where units have gone through rotation after rotation after rotation over 10 years, the the frog has boiled in the, or slowly, you know, yes, uh, yes. got to boiling point And there's just that change of perspective in terms of what, from an external perspective, seems very black and white. You know, in in terms of um the the behaviours and the application of force and all that sort of thing, um. But without a doubt, I think this uh, um current sort of or the 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 aftermath of Afghanistan has really highlighted the requirement to revisit this whole concept of ethics and how we train it and instil it in our our militaries.
3: Mm, mm, Absolutely. And I I do think the military put a much um they put much more emphasis on it than other organisations. Again, that may be an external view view of mine. I don't know what it's like on the inside, and you know, is it really still acceptable to admit that you know people want to address mental health problems? Um, you know, I know on the humanitarian side that you know we we talked about advocating for policies in big agencies around. No, no, you don't have a a system where you can opt in to have um, psychological debriefing. It must be mandatory because people will say, "No, yeah. I don't need that. Why? Well, yeah. I'm not weak. I don't need that. I have just." you know, just being kidnapped in Somalia for five months. No, I'm I'm not soft. So it was really around, no, no, you just make it mandatory. It's pretty easy. Just put it in and you've got to pay for it. It's expensive. But you have to just make it something that happens. It's not something that people can opt in and opt out. Mm.
2: Beth, we'd like to conclude with a little section that we call quick questions, quick answers. Are you willing?
3: Oh, and able? Yes. (laughs) I hope so.
2: (laughs) The quick questions prompt is more for Ben. The quick answers, (laughs) more for you. Okay. Are we ready? Ready. What's your favorite location?
3: Location. At the moment, I'd have to say it's Hanging Rock.
0: Hmm.
1: Don't make a I picnic. Can't.
3: Tim's. I can't. Yeah, I was going to say Tim. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I was waiting for that. To take he,
1: he, was ju- he was a.
3: <laughs> was,
1: no. You take a hamper. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and, a, and a long wine <laughs>
1: Wonderful. What's the most unexpectedly beautiful place you've ever been?
3: I think it must have been Banyan, actually, in, in yes. Central Africa. Huh. Um, when I went to see where the, where the poor the old Buddhas. Male and female Buddhas and the Blue Lake. Did you go to the Blue Lake in Banyang? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, stunning. Absolutely.
0: Uh,
2: Interlude, I swam nude in the Blue Lake. (laughs) 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 I just had to. I just had to do it.
3: So Back to the ethics. Yeah, no, no.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Favourite overseas destination?
3: Oh, I really loved Istanbul in Turkey. Mm It was such a beautiful
2: place. Yep,
1: very diverse, Asian side and European side. I mentioned before you're you're quite well written. Uh, you're quite prolific. What's the best piece you've ever written, in your opinion?
3: Oh I hope it's yet to come. Um <laughs> <laughs> Um I, I actually could say it's the one that you uh, you referred to in that edited volume because whoever edited the piece that I wrote. Like, I <laughs> recognized it vaguely, but gosh, it was great when someone else had edited it. Um, but I, I guess I did like that piece because it was a very um, it was quite a candid reflection on what it was like to have conversations uh, with militaries around. Some pretty tricky situations. There are a couple of situations where NGOs, NGO offices, actually had been um, occupied by military forces in Afghanistan, like taken over and actually used for detainees. And you know the knock-on effects for the humanitarian community around that. So I, I enjoyed writing that because it was um, it was something that I was very passionate about.
2: Damn it! That was my next question. What are you most passionate
3: about? I think i I'm, I'm I'm most passionate about. humanitarian response being done better. I I just sort of feel like we have so many tools at our disposal, we have political levers to pull, we have evidence base, we have amazing partners, we have ideas, we have innovations, we have technology. And I just feel like we still sometimes aid is still delivered like it was 50 years ago. And I feel like we should be taking more risks. We should be trusting people who know best. We should be devolving, we should be localising and really walking the talk on some of these things that you hear politicians saying. I mean, we should be trusting people more. We should be shifting power to the people that actually know best.
1: What's your power song, speaking of power? Mm.
3: Oh, power song. Oh, it's pretty hard to go past living on a prayer, I guess. Bon Jovi. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Do you do mm. the air guitar? Oh, every time. And the mullet. <laughs> we'll include
2: that to the Unforgiving 60 playlist oh, on Spotify. Sweet, every guest sweet. gets a power song, so it will oh, be included.
3: Power ballad, power ballad.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we call it power songs. Don't get me on a technicality. Okay. Uh, how do you stay fit and healthy?
3: Oh, I do like yoga and Pilates, but I have to admit, like since the lockdown, I have found it—I uh, have found it really challenging, actually. So at the moment, I've been trying to. Um, when I get the kids outside, I put them on their bikes, and I try and run and tell them to ride their bikes, and I try and keep up with them. <laughs> so that's what I've been trying to do.
1: Another COVID-related question: You've been doing a bit of homeschooling. Would you ever become a teacher?
3: <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't have the patience, the ethics, <laughs> the goodwill, <laughs> sweet nature. Any of the any of the above. I think teachers must be oh, give me three years in Afghanistan over homeschooling any day of the week. Yeah, it's, it's been a really hard slog. Yeah, try <laughs> to try to juggle work and homeschooling, and um, yeah, it, it it has been really tough. Although you know, I whinge. Lots of other people are having it much much tougher than me. Um, I, I, I absolutely recognise that. But, um, yep, let's hope that at, at the end of COVID that teachers and nurses and cleaners and all the people yeah, that do that behind-the-scenes yeah. stuff that we didn't recognise and that, let's hope they get, um, you know, paid what they should be paid and uh, get the kind of accolades that they deserve.
2: Beth, you've had some incredible moments. There are a litany of achievements. What are you proudest of?
3: I'm probably proudest of HAG, really, of of setting up an organisation that has given, you know, quite a few people their livelihoods but also has explored a new model of working. So, for example, even before COVID, we always worked for um, four days a week from home and one day a week in the office. So we always try and worked in a way that was, really results based, I suppose. We really trust our team a lot. Hmm. So we sort of say, this is what we need to get done. These are team goals. We all need to, to go out there and do some really, really good thinking, designing training, undertaking research, forging partnerships that'll actually come up with some new ideas which are gonna challenge the, the status quo, which are gonna challenge the way in which humanitarian response uh, occurs globally. And I think that's that's given us a lot of flexibility and a lot of um, a lot of a lot of scope to really explore different different areas and to to sort of carve our niche as a different kind of organization because I think that idea of you know everyone having just to sit there and you know hey there have you finished what time did you leave all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. whereas now we just embrace the fact that we've got a lot of work that needs to be done let's just produce some really excellent results uh, and we're just really lucky i guess we have a culture of trust within our team that allows that to happen
1: i noted one of your values within hag is ridiculous fle- uh, flexibility which i reckon yes. is <laughs> an awesome way of, of i mean and it's how we all live our lives anyway but to embrace that and and to get away from that nine to five presenteeism concept to to a flexible con uh, construct i think is a, a fantastic laudable sort of uh, endeavor My last question, sort of following on from Tim. Tim asked, what's your proudest moment? I'm going to ask, what's your coolest NGO moment? What's the sort of, you look back, maybe a a whiskey tango foxtrot sort of moment. What's your, your coolest, don't think, just answer.
2: Firing, oh, firing ak-47s God. into the air the elbow room or something in Afghanistan yeah.
3: Oh, don't talk about the elbow room first date with my husband
2: <laughs>
3: mm. um, many
2: a romantic night at the elbow room for some
3: oh that's right um oh gosh oh that 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 is a very that is a very tricky one i think um I don't know i don't know if it was a cool moment but i think it was um a moment where I was showing that i didn't made me really know what I would got myself on into is we we were just in a small little plane. And I, I didn't sort of realize when you, when you took off in Afghanistan, you had to do this sort of, and landing as well, this kind of spiral kind of thing where, yeah, I just assumed one of the engines had fallen off and we were about to die and we are kind of careering towards them. And uh, everyone's like, oh, no, this is normal. Don't worry. We're just uh, making sure no one can get a lock on us. It's fine. Like, oh, yeah, no worries. So I, I guess after that I tried to pretend I was cool and um, and especially on the UN helicopters, which, of course, are, you know, just run by kind of inebriated Ukrainian pilots. And we'd get on and they'd say, oh, take off your flak jackets and just can you just lie them like in the cockpit just on that glass <laughs> Not really. And we'd say, oh. Oh, okay we'll just yeah yeah just put those there yeah that, that'll ensure that we we don't get killed so, oh all right then so we just go go in the back and <laughs> sort of sit there and, and people would say ah, oh, un bloated you know salaries and fancy kit you think wow we had one armored vehicle for like our entire <laughs> like entire part of the un you know so um yeah I, I i wouldn't say that it was yeah i wouldn't say that i was that cool but uh, i did meet lots of very cool people though
2: awesome and my final question where are you going to be in the next 12 months?
3: Probably still in Woodend. <laughs> I, I must say, um, I don't think we're going to be many exciting places, but I would like to think that in terms of where we'll be um, thought-wise, that we may have come up with some really fantastic ways in which to reimagine our society, reimagine Australia, reimagine what societies can look like around the world I'd love to think that we might be in store for a you know a green new deal that we may realize that we listened to the science with COVID and that didn't turn out too badly in Australia and perhaps we should listen to the science on climate change and perhaps we may see you know massive um, infrastructure spending on renewable energy I would love to think that I'm I'm really concerned about what the aid budget might look like in 12 months time but I would love to think that there's been a recognition that for Australia to to prosper and to be able to uh, you know be really linked in with its near neighbours and in the region that we're going to have to you know invest and support health systems in our near neighbours and other kind of humanitarian aspects I would really like to think that um, that we're going to sort of look at multilateralism that we want to be part of the global community, that we're not just going to retreat um, and just sort of take care of our backyard. I would like to think that we could be a leader. Um, and I'd like to think that HAG can play a part in, in some of that thinking. Beth,
1: that is an awesome way to conclude this discussion. I love that idea of a Green New Deal as a, as a I guess a, a beacon of hope for, for these relatively troubled times, but on a more sort of uh, immediate level, that was an awesome conversation. I really enjoyed chatting. Thank you very much for your time and your insights today.
3: It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me, and congratulations on a really great uh, podcast series.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Ben.
3: Looks
2: like another night on the bottle
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Feels like my back's against Whoa.
3: Oh, have you got, you, you guys must have t-shirts surely
1: we need, oh, oh, yeah, That's a sore, yeah, <laughs> don't even start You need
2: merch, <laughs> you merch yeah. Our, Our admin merch game is weak <laughs>
0: Inspired by people who are doing things bigger than themselves and know how tough it can be for those who volunteer and run charities. If this is you, we'd love to spread the word to the Unforgiving 60 community by advertising your cause on an episode for free. Just complete the short charity fact sheet on our website www.unforgiving60.com and we will do the rest. And while we have you, thank you for your selflessness.